So um, every time I get asked this, I end up having to, to do a 10 a.m. devotion. I end up, okay, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to do? Um, and every time I end up like, I feel like I selfishly learn more than, um, than what I'm presenting. So um, for this time, I was thinking about church history and um, I personally think I take a lot of things for granted in things like the Trinity or just the deity of Christ. Um, these things were heavily discussed, debated, even physically fought over um, the, in the early couple centuries of the church. Um, I think I personally think I don't, or I didn't think I understood that really to its um, to the depth I thought I should. So I figured selfishly, let's use this as my own time to really dig into early church history and the deity of Christ. Um, I also think understanding history is extremely important. The quote, uh, those who do not understand or know history are doomed to repeat it, comes to mind. So even more so in terms of our faith, understanding church history um, and how we come to believe what we believe, I think is really important. Um, One of my favorite devotional books is Nick Needham's The Early Church Fathers. So each month is a different church father, and then they'll have uh, scripture and the church father's um, commentary on it. And it's really cool to get like a picture of time of what this church father was dealing with theologically, personally. Um, and f- for this, for this uh, 10 a.m., I'd like to take a look at Athanasius. Um, I kind of want to go into three different portions. Is Athanasius, like who he was, when did he live, why is he important? Um, secondly, it would be why is important is the Arian controversy and the Nicene Creed was uh, one of the main things that he dealt with. So touching on what is the Arian controversy, what is... Why is Nicaea important? And then lastly, all of this points to the deity of Christ that was heavily discussed, debated, and was not really totally resolved at Nicaea in terms of the culture of the church and the disagreements and whatnot that would come afterwards. Kind of giving an overview real quick on Athanasius before um, jumping further is uh, he really is considered a great hero of Eastern and Western Orthodoxies, whether it's even the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Greek Orthodox, they all consider him a saint. Um, and sometimes it gives you a, a cringe, like, oh, he's a saint. So is that, it's a, back at this point, there's, this is the beginning of the Eastern and Western churches that are kind of starting to come to, to, um, kind of separated. But um, uh, he's a man of great courage. Um, he was really important theologically in what he ended up defending. He's a defender of orthodoxy. He ended up becoming exiled five different times because of this. Um, so that's why I say, while Nicaea attempted to resolve a controversy, it wasn't really, um, it didn't, while it on paper is, is said and done, it, there's a lot of internal struggle in the church afterwards. Um, because of these multiple exiles and him coming back, um, the Latin phrase Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, kind of came about. So you'll hear that from time to time in church history. That's referring to this exiling and then coming back and then exiling and coming back. Um, to give a little bit of context of the time period of what we're talking about, um, kind of setting the stage, he was born in Alexandria in Egypt, so right at the very bottom of the Mediterranean. Um, they don't really know when he was born, 293, 298, right around then. But he was born into a Christian family um, and a very formal, uh, a very um, expensive, formal, uh, secular education. So he was, by the world standards, very well educated from the beginning. Um, Alexandria is one of the most important trade centers at that time in that whole area. So think 
uh, Greco, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, all these different cultures, all these different languages, uh, different religions, all in this one area. It's like the intellectual, moral, political center of Rome, if you will. Um, probably more, I read a place that said it's even more important than Rome or Constantinople at this time. It's Alexandria. It's that bridge into the rest of the world, into the Mediterranean. Um, also around this time is the first time we see a Christian uh, Roman emperor. So Constantine the Great, who reigned around 306 to 337. Um, and to give you some context, the hundreds of years before that, we're seeing a lot of persecution. You see Nero, you see um, a, a lot of Roman persecution against Christianity. So this is the first time that you have a kind of a lull in the um, constant persecution. Uh, and this thing called the Edict of Toleration uh, led to the Edict of Milan, which formally ended Rome's uh, stance against Christianity, right? So now you have this, this lull, uh, if you will, in terms of the church um, having people constantly killed for their faith. <laughs> in the uh, uh, History of, Christ- of the Christian Church by Schaeff, he says... Constantine, while one of Rome's most gifted, energetic, and successful of the Roman emperors, was also the first to impose the idea of Christian theocracy. Um, Schaeff goes on to make the point that this will influence the church and animated the whole of the Middle Ages because of this um, this stance. Um, It's a bit of a tangent, but I really like this quote that Schaeff has regarding Constantine, as I believe it's just as important in this day uh, in terms of the application. He says, Constantine stands as a type of an indiscriminating and harmful conjunction of Christianity with politics, of the holy symbol of peace with the horrors of war, of the spiritual interests of the kingdom of heaven with the earthly interests of the state. So while having a Christian Roman emperor is is nice to not have aggressive persecution against the church, uh, at the same time, it's this marriage of the state and religion and our Christianity being merged with the state, which has a huge impact on the next thousand years because of that. So um, this is the first uh, Christian emperor, which is a good and a bad thing um, in terms of less persecution while having some problems politically later on. Um, To wrap up Constantine, Constantine took a very active part in Nicaea and the debates and the discussions. He actually acted much like its chairman for the whole council. Um, And it's important to note that his court advisor was a Western bishop which most of the Western churches are all very much siding with the belief in Christ's full deity. So um, his influence and his advisor is going to be holding the view of Christ's full deity during um, the Nicene Council. So kind of back to Athanasius, now we have a little bit of context of time and place and and whatnot. Um, Athanasius' abilities and Christian devotion at a young age were very much admired by the Bishop um, Alexander in Alexandria. Um, Kind of goes together there. Um, and he became a deacon in 319 A.D., which means he would have been roughly in his 20s um, when he became a deacon. Um, he accompanied Bishop Alexander to the Council of Nicaea six years later after being a deacon. Um, so when Bishop Alexander passes away, about a, uh, only like five or six months later, and Athanasius is then um, consecrated as a bishop in his place. Um, important to note, there was there's some controversy around that, but... Um, uh, professor of history um, Gil Martin writes about this specifically. He says, On the death of Alexander, five months after the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius was unanimously elected to fill the vacant seat. He was most unwilling to accept the dignity, for he clearly foresaw the difficulties in which it would involve him, in, um, and sure enough, that, that occurred. The clergy and the people were determined to have him as their bishop, though, and refused to accept any excuses. He at length 
consented to accept a responsibility that he sought in vain to escape and was consecrated in 326 when he was 30 years of age. Um, his bishop, being a bishop, his episcopate is what they call it, lasted 45 years, 17 of which were spent in exile, ordered by four different emperors. So it's just this constant um, uh, struggles that he has a, as a bishop. Um, he's considered to, by all these different denominations as a very renowned Christian theologian, church father, um, and a, like one of the core defenders of Trinitarianism. Um, when you talk about people defending the Trinity or church father, like Athanasius' name is going to come first in mind in terms of the Trinity. Um, as we'll see in a moment, the, while the Nicene Council and Creed formally resolved the dispute in the church, kind of like I said, the struggles and strife because of the, um, the existing Arian folks that held to the Arian view and whatnot would cause a lot of heartache and hence his five exiles. Um, to kind of wrap up um, Athanasius and the, the church history aspect, there's three different um, quotes from different scholars and historians I think I thought was helpful to give you an idea of what was going on at the time and what this what these struggles were um, were like um, the rise of the fall of the Roman Empire that big stack of um, history on on Rome Edward Gibbon um, has a good quote to try to kind of give us uh, an idea of what these exiles were like they're not like a slap on the wrist or a, you're not gonna get a ticket it's a lot worse than that right so he writes Whole armies were successfully employed, to, or successively employed to pursue a bishop and a fugitive. The vigilance of the civil and military powers were excited by the imperial edict. Liberal rewards were promised to the man who should produce Athanasius, either alive or dead. And the most severe penalties were denounced against those who should dare to protect the public enemy. The fugitive bishop was faithfully served by monks who were his guards, secretaries, and messengers. So this is a very active, specific persecution against the man Athanasius um, by, the, by the Roman Empire. It's interesting because it's the, the Roman Empire and the Roman emperor that backs this viewpoint. But then, as I kind of mentioned earlier, having Christianity in line with the state doesn't mean that the state's going to really hold the, the correct view on, on religion and Christianity. Um, Dr. Peter de Jong on, on um, his exiles and his persecution, if you will, he says, He was never found by his imperial enemy. The tales of his various hiding places and even of his secret presence at some important church councils would make a plot for a best-selling novel. Through his long, this long exile, his continuing writing united and encouraged the Orthodox in their seemingly hopeless resistance to the politically promoted and apparently triumphant heresies. And the Orthodox doctrine gained popular support. People sang in defiance of their preachers, the doxologies to the Trinity, and some formed separate assemblies led by other elders. So you have a lot of tension within the church um, at this time, as you can see by, by that quote by De Jong. And then lastly, um, on, these, on these quotes, this one I found amusing. Um, uh, Nick Needham wrote about Athanasius, and he says, this one's actually in the, um, uh, the book I mentioned that has the devotionals. But he writes, uh, I've sometimes been struck by his remarkable sense of humor which comes across in various incidents across Athanasius' life. My favorite, Athanasius was being pursued down a river by imperial soldiers. Arriving at a bend in the river, he turned his boat around and rowed back towards his pursuers. As the two boats passed, the soldiers demanded, as it was getting dark, Have you seen Athanasius? Yes, he replied. You're quite close to him now. Then he calmly rowed on and escaped as the soldiers disappeared eagerly downstream in the opposite direction. Uh, um, 
So what is this Aryan controversy all about? Um, and what is the Nicene Creed? Why do, we, why do they call the Nicene Council? I kind of touched on it a little bit, but I kind of like to get into it a little bit further. Um, according to Nick Needham, uh, I used a lot of his material, so you'll hear me quote him a lot um, in understanding this. But the Arian controversy was the greatest theological controversy in the history of all Christianity. It was centered on the most fundamental of all questions. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he God in the flesh? Or is he just created like us? So you can kind of see, uh, I, I kind of leaned towards this whole topic because I felt like, oh, that's simple. Yeah, well, Jesus is God. Like, there's huge debates for, for centuries on, on this very topic, and it's really crucial to, to understand it. Um, so in the year 318, Bishop Alexander, the, uh, the bishop that Athanasius was a deacon under, um, well, he was the primary leader of all the church in Egypt. Uh, he made a speech to his clergy on the Trinity, stressing the oneness of God. And one of his elders, Arius, took exception to the speech, arguing that it did not do justice to the distinctions between the divine persons. Um, he maintained that since God the Father had begotten the Son, there must be a time when the Son did not exist. Um, and held that the Son must be less than the Father. The bishop saw in these views of his elder an attack on Christ and the doctrine of, the, of salvation. The Christian church uh, and the faith no longer persecuted outside since Constantine's conversion has now, is now threatened by compromise with old paganism and these other views um, uh, by Arius. So you see this persecution is now that it's external. Now you have internal strife within the church as we start tackling uh, core understandings of, of Christ. Um, Ligonier's had a really um, a good quote on kind of describing at a high level uh, the Arian controversy. Uh, it says, A controversy had arisen about the nature of Christ. In the red corner, there is Arius, understanding quite rightly that there is only one God. Um, I think it's uh, important to believe that Arius isn't um, like this. His mind, he's trying to defend um, having one God, um, obviously in an error. Uh, let me finish the quote. <laughs> Understanding quite rightly that there is only one God. He reasoned quite wrongly that God the Father alone is eternal and uncreated. Everything other than the Father is created, including, says Arius, the Son, whom God made before anything else. Arius was keen to affirm that Christ was a perfect creature, but nevertheless must be a creature, uh, even though he was the creature through whom the Father created everything else. So that's his like. That's why he views what he what he views, and that's that would be his argument, right? <clears throat> However, in the blue corner was Athanasius and Alexander, who saw that Arius was teaching something unscriptural, and if left unchecked, would have profoundly damaging consequences to the church and the people. For example, if Christ is not God, then how could we worship him? Um, that's really important. To, I'll, I'll get into that later as well. Uh, it's also important to note that. Arian teaching, while um, you might think of it as a 300 AD um, uh, dispute, but it's really not really disappeared completely. You have cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and others that really don't hold Christ as God or as his, they don't deny his deity all day long. Um, you have other liberals within Christian denominations that also deny the divinity of Christ. So um, it's still around. It just has a different name at this point. Um, oh, there's a, there should be a handout that was um, passed around. Um, I wanted to read the Nicene Creed. Um, so as a result of the uh, controversy, Constantine, the emperor, is the one that summoned the council together, and they called 300 different bishops across from all of them. This was 325 um, AD. Um, and I'll, let me just read the, the creed and make a few comments. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things visible and invisible, 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, not made, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom, i.e. through Christ, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, who for us human beings and for salvation came down and was incarnate, was made man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. The words bolded on your um, outline there, our handout, are all specifically addressing the Arian controversy. And you can see it in the way it's addressing God from God, begotten, not created, same essence. These are all addressing the relationship between the, um, the Father and the Son specifically. Um, and as I kind of mentioned um, uh, earlier, while the, while the Council and the Creed really addressed the Arianism controversy formally and settled the debate, if you will, um, there's a massive resurgence of Arian views, especially in the Eastern Church. Um, essentially, after Nicaea, the Eastern Church was split into three different camps. You have Nicaea, the folks that align with the Nicaean Creed, the Arians, but then there's a third group that are called the Originists, um, and this is actually a majority of the Eastern bishops' view, even after Nicaea, which held that while Christ isn't, is not a created being, so they're not agreeing with Arian, um, they believe that he was uh, inferior to the Father in his divine nature. Um, and on your handout at the bottom, there's, the, uh, there's two Greek words and the, the breakdown of them. Uh, and the Greek word in the, um, in the creed, homoousius, uh, the one on the left at the bottom. That's very specific. That's like the most important word in the creed, and it is addressing same substance um, in terms of Christ and his relationship with the Father. Now, the originists would use, um, would promote and push, it's just adding that single I in there, homoousius, which is similar essence, which at the end of the day is a huge difference. Um, and it's interesting having a single letter in that Greek word changes the entire um, uh, understanding of that. Um, but uh, I think that's just interesting to see uh, that they, when they developed this creed, they were very specific in, in its creation and they picked their words extremely carefully to ensure that it's addressing the, the controversy. Um, it's also interesting to note the importance all this has on the history of the world in general. So the Nicene Council and Creed it really helped further the schism of East and West. Um, this great schism has a lot of implications to the world that we see today. Um, uh, for example, uh, I'll just give you a tangible one that I, I personally have been finding, I found interesting. Um, I felt like I didn't really know that much about Russian history, so I've been listening to Russian history lectures by a professor on Audible. And he actually, this is a non-Christian professor, but he makes the point that the Great Schism and this Eastern Orthodox true, like this big separation has impacts on all of Russia because Russia has always felt isolated. They've always wanted to be part of the West, but they're not. And then this Great Schism from a religious perspective further separates them from the West. So um, just kind of a side note, but it, things like the Nicene Creed and making that has had massive implications worldwide for a thousand plus years. And you still see that today. And Eastern and Russian Orthodox churches, um, and this kind of you can kind of map it all the way back to to things like Nicaea. Um, I also uh, wanted to, um, uh, if you would open the, if you go to the back of your hymnal, I wanted to read the London Baptist Confession 
Um, chapter 2, paragraph 3, it's on page 672. Uh, essentially, the, the writers of the London Baptist did a really good job at um, essentially summarizing the Nicene Creed um, in, their own, in their own way in this chapter and paragraph. So, uh, chapter 2 and paragraph 3. And it says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Um, the, new exposition, uh, the new exposition of the London Baptist Confession uh, has this really, I think, good, good statement it makes on it, and it says, this doctrine of the Trinity is a divine mystery, and it is a misconception of the creeds of the church generally and of the Nicene Creed specifically to think that they were intended to explain in detail this mystery. I think it's important to think or to realize that. Um, otherwise, you'll find, you'll find yourself somewhat still lacking. Like, why didn't they explain this? Well, this is uh, Deuteronomy 29.29. The, these are things that are mysteries that will never be completely un, uh, unveiled to us, at least here in this life. Um, moving to the last section I wanted to c- kind of talk, talk about is that this, the deity of Christ um, and go over it in a few different um, uh, ways. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions that are really important when you think about this and why Nicaea was important. Like, if Christ is not eternally God, then how can we worship him? How can this death and resurrection even save us if he is not the son, right? Those are big, those are big questions. Um, and I kind of would like to do this by looking, since we're talking about Athanasius, let's look at some of what he says specifically about this um, in his writings. Um, I'd also like to look at a philosophical argument that C.S. Lewis makes, um, specifically defending the deity of Christ, and then as well as look at a, a bunch of different scriptures that, that really show this to be the case. Um, <clears throat> Ath- one of Athanasius's writings, he says specifically, He, Christ, must be God and man in one person. In Christ the God-man, humanity has been lifted up into the very life of God. How can we worship him unless he is God? If we are worshiping a created being, we are committing idolatry. Um, there's a passage in John that I'd like to read, uh, John 8, 48 through 59. And then uh, Athanasius has a basically a commentary on this passage addressing Arianism, the deity of Christ. Um, so in John 4, 48 through 59 is the uh, passage. Um, I'll start with verse 48. Um, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. 
If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Uh, and here's, this is Athanasius's comments on this. It's actually the, um, if you have the um, devotion book, it's the D- December 7th date on it. It just has a, um, has a reference to this. And this is um, a kind of a summary of that. It's not the whole devotion. Athanasius comments on this passage. Unbelief is coming in through these Arians, or rather a non-scriptural Judaism blended with pagan superstition. Anyone who holds these ideas can no longer be called a Christian, for they are utterly against the scriptures. John says, the word existed in the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. But these men say he did not exist before he was begotten. Again, John writes, we are in him who is true, even his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is 1 John 5.20. But these men, as if to overthrow this, say that Christ isn't the true God. The Apostle Paul fastens guilt on the pagans for worshiping created beings, saying they worship the creature more than God the creator, uh, Romans 1.25. But if these men say that the Lord Jesus is a created being and worship him as a created being, how do they differ from pagans? If they hold this view, isn't this very text, uh, the text that we just read, John, against them? The Lord also says, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. And he that has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. The Apostle Paul, whom Christ sent forth to preach, says of him, He is the brightness of God's glory and the exact image of his person, Hebrews 1.3. But these men dare to separate son from father, making the son alien to the father's eternal essence. They claim that the son is prone to change, not seeing that thereby they make him to be not one with the father, but one with created beings. Um, Trying to changing gears a little bit, I wanted to briefly touch on the C.S. Lewis philosophical kind of argument, if you will. uh, a bunch of you have probably already heard me reference this in conversation on the side, uh, but I found it really useful in um, talking to unbelievers as a, like a kind of as an argument to use or a, a framework that you can use in terms of discussing this. So in Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis points out that there's only three possibilities about Jesus. He was God, Jesus, or um, a liar. Oh, I just I messed this up. <laughs> Basically, it's called the three L's: liar, lunatic, or Lord. So he's either a liar or insane, or he is God. There's, those are the only three options. Um, he, he, call, he claimed to be God, uh, and we saw that in that, that passage in John. So um, those are the, really the only three primary options that you have in understanding Christ. Because um, a, lot of, a lot of common, um, we're not Christians, but a lot of folks will say, oh, I'm not a Christian, but Jesus was a good man. But using this argument, you can't come to that conclusion. He's, he's either very malicious um, and is lying, or he's insane for claiming he's Christ, but we obviously know that um, he is God and he's claiming to be God because that's who he is. Um, and lastly, I wanted to read a couple of scriptures. There's a theologian that really does a good job at summarizing how the New Testament church viewed Christ and his deity. And then um, there's about five different quick references that really back his text up. Um, as Burkauer summarizes the New Testament church um, by, in the following way. The heart of the Christian religion pulsates in the confession that in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation of the word, God truly came down to us. The practice of the ancient church to speak of Christ as of God goes directly back to the New Testament itself, where we hear adoring voices addressing Christ as truly God and not as quasi-God. 
Um, and there's five, you don't have to turn there because they're really short, but um, five references in the New Testament I'd like to read. I specifically back up this, um, this quote. First is Colossians 1.16, and it reads, For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Then John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through all him, through him all things were made, for without him nothing was made that has been made. Um, in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in uh, John 20, 28, Thomas said to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God. Second Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you can see, like, the, uh, I had a, I've had a discussion with a, um, a co-worker about the deity of Christ who's a, um, not a Christian, um, and he doesn't believe, he's made a statement like, oh, Christ, Jesus never said he was God or claimed to be God. And I think you can clearly see through um, all these different scripture references, not only did he claim declare himself to be God, you could see in the John passage, but the entire early church and the apostles all held the view and understood him to be deity. Um, all these scripture references are clearly stating that. Uh, and you can see just in the simple, like the last one I read, you can see um, Peter uh, specifically, even in just the, the beginnings of some of these epistles, you see them specifically referencing Jesus Christ as God, which I think, I, for the years and years, you just read past that, and I found that really interesting now to see how important these little statements by these apostles are um, in terms of the fundamental reasons for, um, in our beliefs. Uh, and then to kind of close, I'd like to read uh, this bit from uh, Dr. Robert Peterson. He's from Covenant Theological Seminary. I think he does a good job at kind of wrapping all this up before we go to the table. Um, He writes, uh, The true Christ of Scripture deserves more than our admiration. That is because he is the eternal word become incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. He is God and man and one person and deserves worship as the only mediator between God and human beings. Because he is God, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. The biblical Christ is the one who was God with us, the, the means of forgiveness for our sin, and the agent of our reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation are what we need centrally. We need to know that there is someone there to forgive us, someone who can, can forgive and heal us, and that was why the Word was incarnate. Indeed, we need to know that God incarnate forgives and reconciles us because of His unique identity and because of the unique work He performed. The church stands in fulfillment of Jesus' own prediction, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it.